Welcome to Grays in Hell, a podcast dedicated to kicking up dust around issues related to pasture-based regenerative agriculture and how it can restore health to our soil, our environment, our bodies, and the rural economy. I'm Neil Tafflinger, and for this first episode of Grays in Hell, I thought we should start by digging into the farm crisis of the 1980s, how the American food system became more concentrated, less transparent, and what it's cost both farmers and consumers. And there's no one better to address that topic than Joe Maxwell. Joe has spent his life fighting for working Americans. He's been a farmer, a soldier, an attorney, and a politician, winning seats in the Missouri House of Representatives and the Missouri Senate before serving a term as Lieutenant Governor. More recently, Joe spent five years leading the Organization for Competitive Markets, which, in its own words, is a membership-based research and advocacy organization working to expose and break the stranglehold of corporate consolidation in our food and agricultural economy. He stepped away from OCM to found and lead a new group, Family Farm Action, which calls itself a progressive voice fighting to protect America's family farms and rural communities from multinational agribusiness monopolies that are destroying rural economies and way of life. Joe's story starts when he and his twin brother, Steve, finished their army enlistment and returned to the family farm in the mid-70s. When we got out of the army, we, we went back home to farm and had about two or three good years, and then uh, uh, the farm crisis hit. And um, I recognized then that uh, people in Washington, D.C., and my state house were making decisions that impacted my life where I wasn't going to be able to do what I wanted to do. And so I went into a member of Congress's office and just volunteered and found I was pretty good at campaigning and and advocacy work. And uh, along the way, I worked for Dick Gephardt, uh, the majority leader in the U.S. Congress, and um, then went home and uh, ran for political office myself. So I came to political office as an advocate for uh, family farmers and for education. I felt that uh, in the world that we live in, that uh, if if you didn't have access to a quality education, you just didn't have a shot. On those two issues, I ran for political office and and, uh, and worked hard while I was elected and then my wife became ill, and I, I did not run for re-election as a lieutenant governor. I did some work as a lawyer, and I worked for um, – I was on part of a team with the Kellogg Foundation's Ag in the Middle Project, and I also have an ag economics degree. I built out a model, economic model, with some other folks, and then went out and started practicing that and helping other farmers build capacity to go to market and compete with the, with the big folks. And so, but my advocacy actually got, led me to politics. And then when I left politics or left elected office, I just moved right back into advocacy and, and working on uh, building strength and, and economic wealth in, in rural communities. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience during the farm crisis? There was a human cost to it. And I, I'd like to know what, what was it like as a, a family farmer living through that? The farm crisis was brought on by multiple decisions made in Washington, D.C. During the end of the 
Carter administration and the uh, beginning uh, first term of the Reagan administration. The first thing I think people need to understand is, is that our elected officials have chosen, intentionally chosen, to deny consumers transparency in the market. You look at a label on dog food, and it tells you where it's made. Your shirt tells you what country made it. But on your beef and pork, you don't know where it comes from. An intentional decision by policymakers, by elected officials, have denied consumers that transparency. Those decisions late in the Carter, early in the Reagan administration, sent agriculture, family farmers and ranchers, into a tailspin that had not been seen since the Great Depression and the exodus to California of so many farm things. My dad was, uh, and granddad had been uh, a very smart businessman and had come out of the depression and had a tendency to be extremely conservative on their financials. Government officials were telling all the young farmers coming out and our universities began to tell everybody, plant fence row to fence row, we'll sell it. Exports will solve the problem. Become monolithic in your practice. They guided these farmers in the 80s in a direction the market would not support as it began to concentrate. The people that began to make all the money were the largest corporations in the United States. By now, they're global Goliath. And what we saw on the farm in the 80s was neighbors killing themselves, committing suicide because they were going to be the farmer that lost the family farm. We saw auctions that the neighbors, as their tractors were sold, as bankers came in, as as uh, people from the coast came in, insurance companies came in and drive those farmers off the land, taking advantage of the depressed agricultural market and farmers uh, who had seen their land prices plummet. So they were having to have uh, 40% or 60% collateral on their loans, but when their land values plummeted, they no longer had that collateral. And the banks just seized the farms and the insurance companies seized the farms. Assuming those farms got gobbled up by conglomerates? That's right. We saw that the bankers, you know, with their one or two pet farmers that they would carry over and insurance companies started buying up land and leasing it back to the <clears> farmer. The uh, rural communities then started drying up. So we saw all this extraction of wealth, one from the plummeting agricultural value of land, uh, the loss of the commodity prices, uh, whether that was corn, soybeans, pigs, or cattle. We saw our communities boarded up. It was a very trying time uh, for rural America, for which it's uh, never uh, fully or even partially uh, recovered from. When you think of it in terms of extraction of wealth and resources, it's almost like the way we understand Appalachia and coal country or Central Africa or South America, the way minerals and resources are extracted and the, the people who live there rarely benefit from it. That's what happened to all of rural America during the 80s, right? That is correct. And it's happened several times along the way to where we are today, where America, rural America, the family farmers, the workers do not share in the prosperity that they're building. They go in and they may punch somebody's time clock as a worker, as a consumer. Or they may be a farmer who raises uh, animals or corn or soybean, and they barely make it. The poverty in rural America is greater than urban America. 
We have greater number of children going hungry at night in rural America. We have a loss of our health care in rural America, all because decision makers in Washington, D.C., have chosen an agricultural and food policy that benefits the largest corporations in the world. After the 80s, these corporations began to take their model around the world. Today, these U.S. companies aren't even American. Smithfield, the largest pork producer in the United States, is now owned by China. Because of bribing 1,800 politicians in Brazil, JBS is the largest beef producer. In the world, it's the largest meat protein producer. They're not even U.S. companies that our elected officials are supporting. And what happens in rural America? All that wealth is extracted and put in the bank accounts of these large corporations like Smithfield or JBS or Cargill. And, and, and the people there do not share in the prosperity that they help build. Record Profits are being made by the Tysons, the JBSs, the Cargill family, still owned by one family, over 100 family members, just paid out over $600 million in dividends at a time soybean farmers are going bankrupt and having to live on a government handout because of the China trade war. Cargill makes millions of dollars for its family. That's what's wrong in America. And again, you can have whatever kind of food system or agricultural system you want, but you have to have policymakers supporting the policy that keeps that wealth at home. How do you reverse close to 40 years of aftershocks from that policy change in the late 70s and early 80s? How do you take the body of rural America that's impoverished and weakened from this? How do you bring it back to full health? The same way they did 100 years ago. You have somebody like Teddy Roosevelt. You have people like President Wilson that care about the people, care about the consumers. What's going on with line speed in the pork and the poultry industry ought to scare every consumer as it relates to food safety. Can you explain what that is? Two things are happening under Sonny Purdue's watch. Secretary Sonny Perdue, he's the head of the Department of Agriculture uh, and the Trump administration. They're allowing these plants to self-inspect for food safety, and they're allowing them to speed up the number of animals they can kill in an hour or a minute uh, and self-inspect themselves. It's like the fox watching the hen house. When we saw Upton Sinclair write the book, The Jungle, in 1906, he talked about the horror of the food, of the meat in this country, the, the harm to the workers, the harm to the consumers, it's going on today. A couple of years ago, JBS was caught bribing inspectors in South America to let rotten meat, their rotten meat, out of the country and be exported to countries like China and the U.S. and other South American countries. When word got out that they were bribing the inspectors, every port, to include China, for goodness sakes, shut down the flow of meat from JBS and their plants, but not the United States. It took us 90 days to decide it was okay to shut down their meat. 90 days. I would suspect 
can't prove, but would suspect that's about how long it took to get all the rotten meat that they had sprayed with carcinogen chemicals to take down the stench and give it a different color. I think that's probably about how long it took to get that meat into the United States. The head of that, during that time, that had the authority to shut down the ports the same time China did, but waited 90 days, now works for JBS, the very company that was caught bribing the inspectors to push rotten meat out of their plants in South America. Every person listening to this podcast should care and, and demand changes in Washington, D.C., and demand President Trump and Secretary Purdue to clean this up. What can an average person do first as the president and CEO of Family Farm Action? They should attend every town hall and demand transparency from their elected officials and to clean up the mess. Second, they need to buy products that they can identify from America's family farmers and ranchers. They need to buy safe food. They need to make sure when they're buying grass-fed beef that it's from U.S. ranchers who care about the land, care about the animals, care about the people that are going to eat that food, and not foreign beef, and not beef that is claimed to be grass-fed. They need they can make a difference with their purchasing dollars. JBS, the owners of JBS, the Batista brothers, Wesley has admitted that they bribed 1,800 politicians in Brazil. They have admitted that they bribed inspectors to sell U.S. consumers rotten meat. Why in the world is U.S. consumers buying JBS beef? Why aren't they buying American grass-fed beef from America's family farmers and ranchers? It's that simple. If there's so much money flowing from these global agricultural concerns into the political systems of every country they operate in, what can, what can citizens do to overcome the challenge of all of that lobbying money and all of those concerted efforts made by those companies to shape policy in ways that benefit them at our expense? First of all, I'm a policy advisor for the Organization for Competitive Markets. Every consumer ought to go to competitivemarkets.com. Read the story about JBS. There are petitions on that webpage. They should sign up for those uh, petitions. They should join OCM and Family Farm Action in their work. That's the first thing that they should do. Join their voices together. There is power in numbers. Senator Rubio and Menendez listened, got concerned, and sent a letter to the Department of Treasury demanding an investigation of JDS. They need everyone's help in saying, I stand with Senator Rubio and Menendez to ensure that investigation occurs. Senator Rubio sent that letter. JBS has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars hiring up lobbyists to fight him. The people matter. This is about their children's health and safety. This is about their health and safety. It's about us restoring prosperity in America for the workers. 
and it's about helping America's family, farmers, and ranchers. I am a capitalist, uh, but I believe that the real value in America, why people are will walk thousands of miles to get here or why the immigrants for 300 years have tried to get here, uh, is is really this concept of a shared prosperity, right? I, I work hard and I get a piece of the prosperity that is America. And uh, because of concentration in the marketplace, heavy monopoly control of the markets, people don't get to share. If you're a line worker at a plant, processing plant, you're not getting your fair share of what you're building. If right. you're a farmer trying to sell, you're not getting your fair market value for your animals or your corn or your soybeans. In the early 1900s, late 1800s, the original trust busters came in. There was a court settlement in 1921, the same time the Packers and Stockyards Act was enacted. At the time, the top four companies, meat companies and, and ag companies, controlled about 46% to 50% of the market. Upton Sinclair yeah. in 1906 wrote The Jungle, and federal government, U.S. government took action, Europe took action, and they began to break up these monopolies. There was a court decree that took on the five biggest meat packers. By 1976, CR4, the concentration ratio of the four largest companies in the meat industry, beef, pork, whatever, they were not vertically integrated. They had not vertically grown, either through acquisitions or merger. Most all of them were horizontal, but it was down to 26%. And the markets were working. I was getting more for pigs in 76 than I am today. President Reagan, by executive order, overturned the court order of 1921. And we adopted Bork's economic theory on that the antitrust laws, Clayton and Sherman, were designed for consumer welfare. And we adopted what's called the efficiency rule. And shortly thereafter, in 1984, the largest a time period of ag acquisitions and mergers occurred, and we started on this trend where now we're at 82% of the beef market is controlled by four companies, 68% of the hog, and uh, consumers only have an illusion of choice. Because no matter what the label says, it's all coming from the same handful of places, right? You're right. Our best evidence of that is when JBS had millions of pounds of hamburger and meat recalled, uh, it affected, you know, uh, dozens of labels. Why? Because it's all JBS meat, just put it under a different label. Can you talk a little bit about how these agencies got to be the, the way they are? Organization for Competitive Markets, they're doing a research paper on what's called the revolving door or agency capture. And what is agency capture? I guess I ought to let folks know what that is. <laughs> Agency capture is when a corporation, through maybe campaign finances or maybe uh, through extra dinners or whatever it may be, get their people appointed. So now you got the fox not only watching the hen house, in the Gostern hen house. They're in the hen house. <laughs> They're managing the hen house. That's right. The second thing that happens is you'll have a – a, a great government worker, and they dedicated their life, and everybody listening has a tendency to discredit, uh, disparage, make fun of government employees, and we try to make sure we don't pay them that. And every now and then, a corporation will get to one of them. We'll treat them good, brag on them, give them awards. That's what this paper will show. 
give them awards, and before you know it, they're buddies with the regulator. And then they get a favor. Then they get another favor. And that's how corporations, multinational, global Goliath, wind up controlling the safety of America's food. What can be done about it? Our research paper will be put out sometime by March, I think, and it will have certain recommendations. Uh, there are certain laws on if you work for government, how soon can you lobby and some other things. Uh, we're digging deep into the laws, and we will. Uh, those laws need to be strengthened. We also need to reward and thank those men and women who get up every day and go to make sure that the food we eat is safe. And we need to not be discrediting them or making fun of them or thinking that they're a bunch of lazy people like I hear all the time out in the countryside. They work hard. They deserve our praise. And we need to treat them with respect. How do we heal that divide between the people who work on our behalf in government, agricultural America, who have been increasingly isolated from decision-making in government and the economy, and, and urban residents who are becoming a supermajority of the country's population. Uh, I'm one of them. How do, we, how do we find the language? How do we find the issues so that we can all sit down and talk about succeeding together? Because that's what we all want. Right. We all want yeah. safe food and healthy food yeah. and clean air for our kids and our grandchildren. Yeah. How, how do we do that? Family farm action. That's what it dreams of. And it, it is ideal and its mission. How do we build those bridges and get the people working together? How, how do we do that? First in America, we, we don't share the same color of skin, the same faith, the same even country of origin. What we share is a concept that if we work hard, we'll share in the prosperity our hard work builds. We'll get our piece of the American pie. We'll get our fair share. But those that have the money, have the power, want to do is, one, they don't want to give it up. So they make us think our neighbor is the villain. They hit one community against another. They make us think that a union worker is the problem, greedy or whatever they would say. They want to take away the power of our government. So they stand up and tell us how bad government is and how regulations are bad. How do we do it? Well, first of all, we got to recognize who the real enemy is. It's not our neighbor. In rural America, it's not those people in the inner city. And in the inner city, it's not those rural people. It's those large corporations those faceless corporations who have taken control, and we need to break them up. We need to do what they did back in the early 1900s, 100 years ago, and we need to have strong uh, antitrust laws that are strongly enforced by administration uh, that understands that a shared prosperity is what builds us. What happens right now in, in, in many of, of the communities – so much of uh, the predominantly white rural community 30, 35 years ago was the middle class, a lot of middle class. Now what they think is that 
government's bad because it just wants to help. Uh, they call it, you know, like those other people. And what happens is, is that we hate or we, 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 we think that's the problem. No, the problem is, is the pie, the, the piece of pie they had is getting smaller and smaller for them. And they shouldn't fear other people joining in with them or getting a piece of that pie. We need to work together to grow that pie the way it was in the 70s when we didn't have this heavy concentration. How do we get there? Is by recognizing what the real threat is to our family and our prosperity. And that threat is this heavy concentration and this corporate greed and this corporate power that's controlling our government that's got uh, is putting their people in to regulate themselves. That's what we need to do. Recognize the real threat. Thanks for listening. Grays and Hell is a production of American Grassfed Association. If you want to hear more interviews like this, you can subscribe to, rate, and review Grays and Hell wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AGA's mission and find a certified farm or ranch near you, visit americangrassfed.org and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find those links in the show notes, along with links to learn more about specific topics discussed in this episode. Thank you.